we're not just going to roll over just because you've asked for a discount. Because then you'll do it again and again. They actually found that 85% of SaaS companies did not increase their prices despite inflation due to a fear of losing customers. Pricing too low actually impacts how your potential customers perceive the value of your product or service. If you are a SaaS company that's easily winning customers with little or no pushback, it is likely a sign that you're leaving money on the table and need to review your pricing strategy. It is actually healthy to lose some price sensitive customers so that you can focus resources on attracting and retaining those customers that truly value your proposition and are willing to pay a premium for it. Welcome to De-Stress Your Business, the podcast where we show you how to get incredible results in your business without constant stress. I'm Alexis Kingsbury, a serial entrepreneur and founder at Air Manual. Now, pricing is one of the fastest and highest leverage ways to increase your profit and cash flow. In fact, you could increase your prices for all customers from tomorrow and your revenue may instantly increase and all of that increase drops straight down into your profit. However, Getting pricing right can be really stressful and we don't want to overcharge customers or risk them leaving, go, uh, leaving and going to a competitor. Yet, leaving money on the table holds your growth back and makes your financial position tighter than it needs to be. So how can we get that balance right? Well, today I'm talking to Aon Bhattacharya, a renowned expert in pricing and strategy and founder of Biz Growth Spout. Uh, Aon has helped numerous companies break through growth barriers through an innovative approach to value-based pricing. And he's worked with many disruptive businesses and well-known brands over two decades. So I'm looking forward to diving deep into his insights on the opportunities for business owners to drive profit and growth whilst overcoming their biggest obstacles around changing prices. Aon, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for that fantastic intro. And it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, the the uh, the pleasure is mine because uh, I know that you've been labelled as Australasia's number one pricing expert for growth firms. Um, can you share a turning point or milestone in your career that's solidified this uh, incredible reputation? It's only been thirty seconds, and you're already making me blush. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, Alexis, um, I'm not sure I can say it was a specific event. Um, that led to this, but rather, uh, I guess, more of a long-term process of continuously building an audience on LinkedIn, um, consistently posting with monetization-related content, uh, mentoring startup businesses, speaking at tech conferences, and on podcasts like like this one. Um, the the comment that you were referring to uh, was actually made by an Australian-based uh, SaaS client um, in, in, in the um, health and safety con construction tech uh, business uh, that I'd worked with, uh, and they were really struggling with profitable growth. Um, they try they they trialed sort of um, freemium strategies and they they tried free free trials they tried discounting price um, but despite this they had low conversions they had high CAC which is uh, customer acquisition cost and they had um, unhappy customers so. Together, we went through a process of identifying the ICP, Ideal Customer Profile, uh, looking at the differentiators and, and value drivers. Um, and we went through a process of, of measuring and quantifying feature value, um, understanding how needs vary across uh, the customer base, uh, and consequently implemented a hybrid pricing model, uh, a packaging strategy, um, and a differentiated pricing uh, structure that delivered scalable expansion revenue um, that aligned price to value um, and was and, and essentially uh, the ICP attracted better quality customers 
who were willing to pay more and generated more cash flow for the business to reinvest in product innovation, which also freed up more resources to focus on those high value customers. Yeah, really nice. And, and, and as a result, uh, I, and I know through our conversations and the research, research that uh, I've done, the content I've seen, like your um, guidance on, on this area and getting this prices right and the, the impact that you can have, as, as you've shared, can have a, a, a um, highly leveraged impact when it then comes to uh, the, the benefit in terms of what you're getting in revenue. Um, however, many businesses are hesitant to change their pricing, particularly to raise prices because they fear losing customers, especially at the moment, the sort of recent impact of inflation. I've heard business owners say, oh, well, you know, people are already feeling the pinch. I don't want to, to add to their burden. What's your primary advice to business owners who find themselves in this dilemma? Yeah, I'd say fear of losing customers is the number one reason that holds businesses back from um, hold, uh, from raising prices. Um, however, um, inflation is impacting all businesses at the moment, um, specifically in terms of SaaS companies. It may not affect them in the same way that it does traditional businesses. Uh, but they are still susceptible to uh, increases in sales and marketing costs, product development costs, wages, all of which have, have gone up in recent years, um, particularly in light of labor shortages as well. Um, this, this leads to a margin squeeze and pressure on cash flow, which hinders scalability. Um, in a, actually, uh, this is quite an interesting survey of 112 uh, SaaS companies across US and Europe that was conducted by Blue Ridge uh, Partners. Uh, I'm not sure if you're, if you're familiar with them, but um, uh, they actually, them, yeah, yeah they, they, actually, they actually found that 85% uh, of SaaS companies did not increase their prices despite inflation due to a fear of losing customers. But when they actually measured negative customer sentiment for price increases from 3% all the way through to 15%, um, they found marginal resistance to price increases. And that is because the vast majority of SaaS businesses are underpricing. Mm. And so increasing prices only closes the gap on unrealized uh, revenue potential from uncaptured value. Also bear in mind that pricing too low actually impacts how your potential customers perceive the value of your product or service, which is what we call price signaling. So if you are a SaaS company that's easily uh, winning customers with little or no pushback, it is likely a sign that you are leaving money on the table and need to review your pricing strategy. It is actually healthy to lose some price sensitive customers so that you can focus resources on attracting and retaining those customers that truly value your, your proposition and are willing to pay a premium for it. I really like that. And it's something that um, with my businesses and particularly with my, my SaaS businesses in the past, I've hit that issue over and over again, right? We we set prices thinking, "Poor, this is this feels high," and you know maybe you're doing some competitor analysis and saying, "Oh, we're we're kind of similar to them, but they're further along than us, so we can't charge as much as them, so we'll go a little bit under." And then a year, two years passes, and maybe you make some little tweaks, and then the number of times we've looked back and firstly realised that customers. Uh, had very little pushback on the prices, which, as you say, is a symptom of not having them high enough. But also sometimes, uh, and in fact, our pricing process has, has some steps in which we record what were the competitor prices to help us benchmark and so on. And we can look yeah. back at previous years and see how their prices have then like been massively readjusted. And so, of course, we were looking at what a competitor was charging, but at, at, on their side, at some point over the next year or two, they then go, oh, we're massively uncharging and change yeah. it. And of course, we're left down here at the low price that they've worked out, you know, means that they can't afford to acquire new customers. And I, I think yeah. this is the what, what I love that, that I've seen you share and we've talked about before is that knock on impact, 
right? It's not just about, oh, yes, great. By increasing your prices, you can get 5% more revenue. It's like the knock-on impact to every part of your business in terms of your ability to grow, your ability to reinvest in growth is huge. So, I mean, you've worked with so many organizations, you know, British Airways, Westpac, like SaaS businesses. You've had a huge variety of experience. Can you kind of bring to life the transformative impact that optimizing pricing can have on a company's revenue, but also its growth and its ability to operate. Yeah, sure, sure. Um, a few years ago, um, I was actually approached by an, uh, a SaaS company in the e-commerce space um, that had recently been acquired by a private equity firm based in the UK. Um, and the investor was obviously looking for um, a reasonable ROI within two to three years. And so they engaged me as a monetization expert. Um, so we worked together to unpack customer value within um, each of their business units uh, through customer interviews, survey and research, uh, such as conjoint analysis. Um, and then we sort of leveraged those insights and I was able to identify six buyer personas and segment the, the customer base according to their use case and perceived value. Yep. So by understanding relative feature value, we were able to prioritize the product roadmap and align feature sets to those buyer personas which would enable them to self-select the, their customers to self-select the package that was right for them. The second uh, important outcome from this is uh, the value messaging itself, mm -hmm. which is essentially how you help your customers to, um, to gauge the value of their choices and appreciate what they would be giving up by not upgrading to a higher value, more expensive package. Nice. So they can then make an informed decision around the trade-offs. So once I had helped them in you know, creating a packaging strategy that enables their buyer personas to, to make an informed choice based on the complexity of their needs, um, you know, the next phase of work was really to kind of do that testing and experimentation around the price points themselves. And there are a number of research techniques that we can use here, such as Van Westendorp, which helps you to identify um, the optimal pricing range. So it's kind of testing that kind of price acceptance by asking a series of questions around whether it's too cheap, whether it's um, you know cheap, whether it's expensive, whether it's too expensive, sorry. I think I'm familiar with it. Is, is it four questions? Uh, yeah. I was, I, I was thinking in the, in the preparation for this interview, I was thinking many years ago, I kind of wrote a, a little pricing module or, or I delivered a, a training, essentially a training module, module on pricing and created a little module. And I was thinking I largely based it around these four questions around, you know, what would be, at what price would it be too expensive? At what price would it be too cheap? And so on. Uh, exactly. Van Westenborg, because I was thinking, I can't remember where I got those questions from. <laughs> that is exactly it. Yeah. So you end up, <laughs> you end up with a few squiggly lines and you end up with a diamond shape, yeah. which is essentially your, your pricing range. Um, so I'm impressed that you, yeah, that you're familiar with that. So that's awesome. Um, I'm, a geek, I'm a geek for this stuff, right? <laughs> so, so I love that. So as you say, you go through that process, you identify, okay, so what are the, the options? What's the kind of range? And as you say, like the diamond zone of, of where potentially prices could be. And, and as you say, doing that per buyer persona rather than just on average across all of your customers. And so what becomes the impact when you start applying that and when you've then got those those different personas picking the one that's right for them? What have you then seen for that, you know, for that particular light, for that e-commerce company? Yeah, so I guess the key thing is that you are creating a packaging uh, strategy that essentially creates a pathway to upgrades. Right. So you're aligning each package with where they are in their growth journey, what their complexity of needs are, et cetera, et cetera, by understanding feature value. So you know what to put where, um, and then it's kind of nurturing the customer through that growth journey. Um, so you're creating that pathway, 
to upgrades through that ladder of value. If you think about it, like a ladder of value. And, and so as a result for a company that then has got that in, what's the, when we look at, okay, what does that mean for its revenue? Or what does that mean for its uh, uh, LTV, its lifetime value of a customer versus its customer acquisition cost? How does that, mm. um, what, what's the kind of scale yeah. of impact we should expect when that yeah. happens? Yeah, so, so I took LTV CAC ratio from five to one to eight to one. Um, doubled the growth rate as well. So it was from 8% growth rate to 16% growth rate um, and generated or in the region of, I think it was about 3 million incremental over a six month period, something like that in wow. ARR. Yeah. And to, to bring that to life, like the, um, you, cause you mentioned the, the LTV, LTV to uh, CSE ratio and, and for appreciate there were some people that are all over this they get what it is for those that that haven't i believe that the and correct me if i'm wrong at any point Aaron, uh, the um sure. the, what we're essentially saying is how much money does a customer end up paying you on average that's the life lifetime value um and some people argue it's best not to do it over the entire lifetime because that takes a long time to get that cash and also how do you draw your average because you've still got all the future so sometimes you might take a one-year period or a three-year period or whatever um and then applying that as a ratio uh, against the cost of acquisition which includes your marketing cost and normally like the sales costs and so on to basically say okay if we spend one dollar on our customer acquisition cost what do we get in our lifetime value from the customer. And as you were saying, you were getting essentially for $1 in, you're getting $5 out. And assuming that that cash comes relatively early, it means that you can really quickly recycle that back into your customer acquisition cost and grow much faster. And so what I love is when you're saying, uh, and firstly, anything I've missed on there, anything that I got wrong before? I... No, I think like most, most, most SaaS companies, um, in order to be viable, need to have at least a three to one LTV CAC ratio. Um, yeah. but with price optimization and a structured approach to monetization, you can take that to eight to one and beyond. Wow. And, and, and that, that is essential. Sorry. That, Cause that's phenomenal, right? Get when you, in terms of getting to eight to one, and again, like it depends a little bit on that, on that time period, but, um, and the way in which they take the payments and so on. But essentially in many cases where I've seen that kind of level, it means that you're getting your cat, you're recycling that cash back into the business really, really quickly after acquiring the customer because you're getting eight times uh, on on that uh, customer acquisition cost, which means you can reinvest so much faster, right? So it's not it's not just oh we make a bit more money or oh well, you know now yeah. we're a bit more profitable than we we're. It fundamentally changes how you can reinvest and grow your business. It fundamentally brings your ability to do more marketing, uh, increase your sales team, uh, invest more in the product, all these sorts of things. It brings all of those things so much sooner than otherwise yeah. you'd be able to do, right? I think you've like just this conversation has just <laughs> brought up some painful memories of how often there's this perception that pricing is a sales blocker. But actually, the better way to think about it is pricing is a great way to flush out your non-ICP customers that do not truly value your proposition and they're only with you because they're bottom feeders and they are, um, as soon as there's a cheaper option, they'll jump ship. And so if you're investing that money into acquiring a customer and they churn after six months, then maybe you haven't even broken even on that customer. Yeah, absolutely. So quality over quantity, I always advocate for. Yeah, I love that. And that, and actually, it's funny because often in pricing, in the context of pricing, we'll talk about those non-ICP, lower-end customers, the ones that are, are highly price elastic that will disappear. But actually, what you just said got me thinking about some of my um, best fit, most willing to pay customers in the past um, where I've had a conversation, told them, oh, yeah, this is what we can do. And they go, oh, my goodness, like, this is exactly what I need. Like, oh, but like, I don't want to waste your time. How much is it going to cost? Because, of course, they don't want to make, you know, don't enter into a conversation and find they can't afford it. And I'll say, mm. oh, and I'll realize in the context of that conversation, I'm about to give them a very, very low price. So I have to go, oh, well, actually, really good news. It's only this. Which, of course, you might think, well, that's fine. Like, okay, so there's money left on the table there, but, you know, they'll be happy. 
the really interesting thing is, firstly, it impacts their perception of the product and the service. But I've even seen that even though they're exciting, they could see how they could solve it. Because the price was low, they invested less in the decision and less in the implementation, which means they become less likely to get the value that was almost yeah. guaranteed given the perfect market, like the perfect fit. And then they don't get the value and go, oh, well, that was a waste of, let's say for argument's sense, like that was a waste of £3,000 when they were willing to pay 10, 20, 50, 100,000. And they yeah. would have then spent more time, like actually making sure that they got the value. And I think that's 100%. what's crazy about this is, as you say, it's not just the financials, it impacts buyer behavior, both um, uh, in terms of retention and when they buy and actually when they stay and when they get the value and so on. Um, one thing that, that strikes me from what you were saying around that process that you go through to, to di identify the buyer personas and what's the price they're willing to pay and so on. I think that's something that people often struggle with. It feels, it feels like a black box. You can't see what they are actually willing to pay and it's difficult to, to split these um, personas, particularly for someone who's in the business, right? Too close to the detail. So aside from mm. hiring you to come and sort it out for them, like how should someone go about understanding a company's, what a company's customers value the most and how that splits. Um, uh, and then, you know, had to feed that into the pricing strategy. Yeah, I mean, look, there's several ways to, to do this, such as like customer feedback and getting insights from sales teams, et cetera. Um, but the, the main one that I tend to adopt is uh, conjoint analysis. As conjoint study is another way of uh, terming it, um, which involves surveying customers and the wider market and asking them essentially to choose different combinations of feature sets at varying price points. And by doing this like hundreds or thousands of times over a representative sample of respondents, um, you can essentially figure out which features are perceived as most valuable and what the willingness to pay for each feature is. Um, and then you can, you can look at the result by segment. So i.e., you can group the results by different customer attributes and you start to then get a sense of how to bundle those features according to the needs of the segment. And so, I mean, this is probably going a step too far in terms of the technical part of it, but uh, by throwing these into... Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay all right this is going to appeal to your like geek factor then <laughs> um by throwing these into a value matrix um which which is like value on one axis and willingness to pay on the other um you can actually determine which are core features versus which are differentiable features versus which ones are actually better to have as add-ons so does that kind of answer your question yeah, I think it does. Uh, the The challenge there for some businesses will be, how do you get that kind of volume? Because the way that you describe it sounds awesome. Like, I love the idea of basically being able to throw out to a large number of people all these different combinations, and I can imagine them clicking, oh, this one sounds most valuable, this one sounds most valuable, and you basically correlate all of that and come out with the perfect answer. But I think for a lot of businesses, they would just feel like, oh, but I haven't got a volume. Like, if I could get thousands of even people to fill in my you know lead form per week never mind complex stuff on pricing what and, and there are some businesses including i appreciate there'll be some of your clients you know SaaS businesses etc who work at enterprise level and as a result they yeah. might only have six to twelve clients so how how does that then or, or, or perhaps a better question is when does that become an appropriate or useful approach in terms of like data size? Like what sort of size do we need as in terms of a sample? Because presumably, presumably it would need to be existing customers or customers that at least understand the context no. or no. Oh, okay. No. So, no. so wider market as well. Yeah. Wider market as well. So, um, and I think, maybe the bit of confusion here, like obviously representative ideally would be N equals 400, but uh, even if you did 200, you'd still get some really good insights. But if you think about each one is maybe doing like a hundred different clicks. So like choose making, making a hundred choices, that's a hundred times 200, you know, so you're up at like 20,000 or something like that. So, you know, you, yeah. you get, 
You're getting up to some some pretty good data there, just by virtue of the fact that it should only take them, say, a, a minute for each choice or 30 seconds per click, uh, as long as you've articulated the value of each feature. So they need to understand the features, they need to understand the value. And so it's, it's our job to make sure that they understand that. Nice. Nice. Okay. Okay. So that, that makes sense in terms of then being able to start spitting that out. And as, as, and as you said, uh, you can also get it through the conversation with sales and uh, interviews with customers and so on. But I can see the key is getting that clarity over, as I said, the ideal customer persona and being able to split that and um, understanding what they value. And I love your point around actually some of the value comes from working out what should be core versus what should be add-on because I think that's often um, really challenging. Um, particularly in SaaS where, you know, software businesses where you often have a long list of features and you'll have pro and basic and enterprise and so on. But actually, um, I can see for, you know, for any business, there are things that you can choose to include or not include. Uh, and that makes a big difference in terms of what you can charge and, and the value perception and so on. Um, yeah, and I think also understanding like what is differentiated from competitors or what is unique is really, really important because that's your competitive moat, right? And yeah. that is needs to be is a very important part of your positioning and your value messaging. Fantastic. Yeah, I really, really like that. So um, one of the things that it then can make that picture even more complex is when you then add discounting into the mix because often that's seen as either something that perhaps sales um, might be expected to have uh, discretion on being able to make a discount. I've certainly in the past, I've had some clients who just expect that with negotiation, they can create a discount, which, you know, I remember uh, the first time it happened, I was like, wait, what? Like, no, it's like, it's on our website. It's, that's our pricing. Um, so obviously there's that. And, but then equally, I've seen businesses where discounting is a standard part of their marketing campaign structure. And they have a particular month or particular period where they offer discounts to, to get a sudden um, increase and so on. What's your view on that as to how that fits into pricing strategy and what, what are the implications of having discounting, given that it, it can have a negative impact on the, on the business um, and how you can kind of mitigate that in the business? Well, first of all, I would consider discounting to be a tactic rather than a strategy. Um, and tactical pricing such as discounts might help you to achieve some short-term you know, uh, business goals, but longer term, it can cause untold harm to your business and the wider industry as well um, in the form of uh, value, um, you know, damaged um, value and brand perception. Um, the, you know, as the old adage goes, uh, you get what you pay for, right? And that is etched in the minds of every consumer and every time you discount the you know the, the customer is asking themselves if they had paid too much prior to the discount and so therefore you've just brought down their reference price mm. so each, each time you do it you will see less and less impact from the discounting as customers um, become conditioned to expect you know that discount um, the other risk is that you you end up in a price war, so you end up in a race to the bottom, um, where essentially no one wins except for the customer, of course, um, and the entire industry ends up getting their margins uh, eroded. Um, you know, when, when you when you discount at the same uh, at the same level of value, you may as well be saying to the customer, "We are a commodity, and we don't stand by our value." So, look, the the my approach is 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 this. My advice is this: rather than discounting, I would advocate for product versioning that offers less value, like lower value options to customers with lower budgets. So it's the give get principle. If, if you, if you're um, f familiar with Reed K Holden, um, he's written a number of books on sort of value selling and that sort of stuff. And it, 
you know that that concept of give get is extremely important particularly in the the b2b SaaS space so that's essentially saying like okay if you need a lower price then we're either going to lower the value or we're going to ask for something in return such as greater commitment or payment upfront but we're not just going to roll over just because you've asked for a discount because then you'll do it again and again and again like it's reinforcing that behavior right yeah nice and i think uh, as a result we tend to see pricing plans where you've got like your startup package or your you know your bootstrap package or whatever that's kind of saying yeah if you can't afford these high levels but you hope to at some point then here's this paired back version i think as you say or as you say like doing yeah. annual contracts or whatever which i think yeah. is is really powerful it's interesting because I, I have seen um some uh, people like, for example, Russell, Russell Brunson, who uh, founded uh, ClickFunnels, where their whole sales strategy and what they teach and encourage uh, through, um, I remember seeing a, a particular piece around like his webinar funnel, like how do you get people to attend a webinar and then they see a webinar about the product and the value you're going to deliver and then you make an offer. And it was interesting in that, like often what he's trying to, he, what he said, would say is, you need to be giving 10 times the kind of value to you, to your price and he'd yeah. position it as going. So, you know, there's this, which is worth a thousand. And then there's this, which is worth 3000. And then I'm going to include this, which is another 10,000 and da, 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 da. And as a result, all of this is worth like $50,000, but instead you, you're going to get it for just 2000. And I always find that interesting because on the one hand, I can see that psychologically it's, awesome for creating urgency in the customer's mind where they feel like oh wow like i wanted the thing at the top but i can see the value in all these bonuses and i may never get an opportunity to buy all of this together again therefore i'll take action right now whereas not having that kind of um uh, offer in place kind of creates a well here's what the price is. That's the price on the website. You can sign up anytime. And they go, oh, okay, yeah, I'll think about it. And they go away and forget and, and go on to other things. How do you, how do you look at that approach? Uh, and and uh, how do you reconcile that? And what, what's been your experience of how you've seen uh, that or similar approaches apply? Yeah, I mean, that strongly aligns with, um, you know, what I would have said about you know, demonstrating that five to 10 times ROI. Um, and that means you essentially need to quantify the value, you know, upfront. Um, and it's, and it's really, really powerful in a sales conversation when you can actually demonstrate that ROI. So, I mean, that's probably a good segue into, into kind of value selling, but that's essentially what it is um yeah and i and i think it's interesting that you pick up on that and say it's about the value and that's certainly how whenever i've applied that kind of technique that's how we've approached it is to say okay here's the value of this thing here's the value of this thing here's this all combined and then actually the price is less than 10 uh, you know 10 percent about whatever however the way that i've seen it taught is more here's the normal price of this thing and here's the you know if you bought like and i'm gonna throw in these trainings or these templates or whatever and here's how we would normally charge for that and so the the number that is being represented isn't one of value delivery it's one of pr past pricing and then saying oh but then all of that's reduced and so it is then a massive kind of discount thing which i think is issue but i think I think your answer basically gives us uh, gives us the true uh, the true uh, approach or the better approach is to say actually don't put the prices and then discount the prices because that has all the problems that we've talked about instead put the value like find, um, articulate what is the likely value to a business that's in your ideal customer uh, persona of each of these things and then aim for 10x plus in terms of the um, the value to the to the price that you charge which yes. I think is especially when you're selling high value products or services you know we're not selling used cars so that's a yeah. important distinction there you know to be positioning yeah, with value and not prices yeah nice and so as you say um we uh, the 
um, we should be transitioning onto the onto the value side because I think the um, what's one of the issues that uh, you um, address with business, with your clients is improving the perceived values of their offerings without even necessarily change the pro- changing the product or service itself. So, what does that look like? Take us through some of the that kind of um, value based pricing and what what uh, what that means. Yeah, so so what we're like, I think what you're referring to here is like that positioning part. Um, and I think it would be useful, I guess, to call out what I've seen, because I think a common misconception is that simply listing features on a product or pricing page is sufficient for customers to be able to self-select the package that's designed for their buyer persona. Like it just, it cannot be assumed that customers will understand the benefits and select the package that's right for them. Like without the articulation of value and ROI that each solution delivers. And so, so perceived value is, is the only value that matters when it comes to willingness to pay for goods and services. Mm-hmm. And the most efficient way to improve uh, perceived value is through effective value messaging, customer interactions, and value selling. So this is this is ultimately what will differentiate you from your competitors and convince your customers that it's the only solution that meets their specific set of needs. Mm-hmm. I mean, let's take an example. Um, Zendesk, are you familiar with the Zendesk yep. pricing boo-boo? Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, uh, so less so with the, the pricing boo-boo. So I, um, I remember Zendesk from their relative early days. I think, in fact, one of my first software business was even a customer of theirs um, in the early days before then other tools like um, GrooveHQ and uh, Intercom and so on came along. Um, so I, I remember uh, that the, they were, you know, essentially a ticketing system for if you needed to provide online support. What happened with the pricing? I, I missed that because I uh, stopped being customer, possibly for this reason. So it'd be interesting uh, to see. Well, you might have actually been too young because this was back in 2010. <laughs> I'm making assumptions about your age here, but. so in 2010 what zendesk did was they moved to a per agent um pricing model which which substantially increased the prices by a hefty 300 percent in some cases um and they got some they got blasted over essentially uh, the media and all that sort of stuff and and their customers were really unhappy and because they'd been conditioned to pay a certain amount per agent uh, for an expected amount of value. Now, what Zendesk should have done was spend more time on their product marketing, communicating value improvements um, before rolling out such a significant change. Um, And they should have spent more time on understanding value at a segment level and, and testing willingness to pay beforehand. So they should have kind of done those pricing experiments, etc. So the the move actually made the market. They were market leaders at that time. It made them uh, inevitably actually vacate the entry space of the help desk market and push the door open for new players to walk in and gain a foothold. Um, so they lost a substantial amount of um, market share. Um, in 2012, they actually found themselves losing massively to Freshdesk. Do you remember those guys? Yeah, yeah I do. Yep. Yeah. And um, yeah, they had to essentially prove prove their competence in getting early stage customers and growing before going public. Um, today, though, today they have a market cap of over $9 billion, so they've recovered, and they've captured nearly 20% of um, customer experience market, uh, which is a hugely competitive space, as, as you'll know, um, and they've successfully pivoted toward enterprise, where ARPA is over 50 times what they um, might make from an SMB uh, customers, and they got there by identifying what their customers value the most across different um, segments and proving the va- proving out the value of their solution. 
testing willingness to pay, optimizing their packaging to meet customer um, needs and iterating their positioning over 16 years to become known as the champions of customer service. So it's that like continuous work they've done on value perception over that extended period of time and winning customers trust and proving out value before they made big kind of leaps in price. Yeah, that's that's uh, I love that story. And I think, as you say, it show, shows the difference between an approach that nearly cost them the, the whole game versus an approach that enabled them to massively uh, increase their, their uh, market position and uh, and actually secure themselves at that high level. And it's interesting. I mean, it reminds the 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 journey of Zendesk from broad support tool that even a startup business like mine uh, back in 2010 2011 uh, would have um, would have used versus now as you say much more enterprise uh, model is an interesting way it reminds me of um, concept from uh, Clayton M Christensen's book The Innovator's Dilemma and his follow up The Innovator yeah. Solution where it essentially says that in any market you've got this constant process of disruption where the existing businesses uh, like Zendesk increasingly are able to serve the bigger customers that are higher profit, higher you know, average revenue per user, the ARPU. Um, and as a result, like that's attractive. So they will continue moving that that way up. Whereas, of yeah. course, those that are the um, what in the book they call the incumbents, the existing businesses are quite happy to let go initially because those are their lowest paying customers <laughs> that they're letting go yeah. of. But over time, um, they, they they get disrupted and, and so on. I think it's interesting that depending on who's listening, like if you're a business that has been in the game a long time and as a result, you've got a very sophisticated offering. One of the things that you should be thinking around your pricing and your customer segments is actually, can I be, are we now ready and able to go for those larger, bigger, happier to pay customers that yes are a bit more complex yes perhaps they're going to take a little bit longer to buy they you know their requirements are are greater but they're willing to pay 10x more and so as a result it, it's worth it whereas if you're earlier stage going there too quickly can uh, make it very hard for you to grow because it takes too long to get that money in and actually you haven't got the the product in a position to do it and so i think that's it's interesting as well to think about how your pricing needs to evolve, not just as you test and improve your model, but actually to reflect where you're at in the marketing, uh, where you're at in the market and where you're at with your, your product and how you can offer. Um, one of the things that I'm really keen to get your, your thoughts on as well is that balance between simplicity and sophistication when it comes to pricing, because I think to some extent, you could argue the more sophisticated your pricing model, the less money you're leaving on the table, right? So, for example, if hypothetically, if we segment the entire our entire customer base into 10 segments and each of those 10 segments has got five different models to pick based on you know their willingness to pay and and so on. And, and we've got our ladder of value that we're adding so that they go from one to the other and so on. I can imagine that we're maximizing the revenue that we get through each of those customers. On the flip side, that creates complexity, both for um, what we have to do at the front end in terms of how we communicate that to the customer, like how do we segment them? How do we how do we avoid them becoming overwhelmed? How do we communicate it in a way that they even understand? But equally internally, how do we make sure that our salespeople understand it? How do we provide that in our systems and in our finance models and all these sorts of things? And so there's that that tricky balance of simplicity versus um, sort of optimization. How do you get that balance right in a business? And does it vary based on the business? It absolutely varies based on the business. And it also varies based on their customers needs and what what they need essentially in terms of like predictability of their costs. Um, so subscription models tend to be far more predictable but usage-based pricing, as an example, tends to be a fairer, perceived as a fairer way to, to, to price um, because you might say, oh, well, you know, how are we actually validating the value of this subscription? Um, I'm hardly getting any use out of it, uh, but I'm paying this flat kind of subscription fee every month. How's that justified? 
you know. Um, so I think it really does depend on the business as well. I'm a huge advocate of hybrid. Um, I know like Twilio is a good example of the, they've got a really great kind of hybrid model. They've got like a subscription component. They've got kind of a usage-based component. Um, and it really comes down to identifying the pricing metric. So what are the value drivers essentially? Mm-hmm. So those are the thing. And the pricing metric is how you charge essentially. Yep. Um, so you want to be able to align. Ideally, the two should be very much correlated. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, it, you know, that then will help you to determine what the right kind of usage-based pricing model is if that's the way you decide to, to go. Yeah, that, that's interesting. And the, that point around the hybrid model um, is, is something that I've certainly found with my own businesses over time is that when you go only on usage, the risk is that they, the customer starts off paying such a tiny amount that it means that you're not able to essentially um, pay for the customer acquisition cost to get them in the door in the first place. Um, yeah. And equally, the, the incremental increase can even create friction for them to get, you know, to, to use and start using and so on, which is weird. And, uh, and I often see some companies, particularly the larger companies, they actually want a bit of um, confidence around what the amount that they're going to be charged is for the purposes of their budget, for example, and, and creating a purchase order and all these sorts of things. Whereas, mm. as you say, on the flip side, if you just have a subscription model that is regardless of usage, then you, you create this, this problem. And um, I'd be interested... With one of my software businesses, what we ended up creating is a kind of base plan where it's, let's say, uh, for sake of argument, it's like $1,000 a year, essentially for a up to 10, uh, in this case, uh, assessments um, uh, 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 sort of model where you say, okay, it's up to 10. And then additional assessments, so additional value based on their usage is then charged to X. And then you've kind of got a different plan that they can take. Is that what we're talking about here when you talk about having a hybrid model where you've got a subscription component and then value on top or, or, or is it something else? No, absolutely. No, that's right. So you've got some predictability. You've got like a baseline of revenue coming in, mm-hmm. um, but you've also got that, upside for that revenue potential from actually like customers growing their usage um so i i guess the the other important consideration is that you don't you don't have to do anything to actually grow that usage it'll organically grow as the customer grows right so you're not having to upsell them onto like bigger packages like, of course, you, you're still going to have like packages, but but because that will create like your subscriptions, right? But the usage itself, like you're not having to upsell them on that. And the other beauty about usage is it's usually linked to a revenue driver. So it's like that value driver of, okay, you're either growing, helping them to grow their revenues or you're helping them to save money. Like those things increase over time so as they pay as they're paying more to you they're actually generating more value for themselves and so it's a win-win situation for both you and the customer love that yeah absolutely love that and i'm conscious that in this conversation we've gone really deep and we've covered some of the sophistication of what you can do and the options and and the research that needs to be done and so on um for listeners who are eager to take immediate action can you give like perhaps one actionable step that they could take today (laughs) to to start that process of optimizing their pricing well i think that the short answer is uh, know your customer, <laughs> but the longer version. So you're going to say no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. Short answer is no. <laughs> you don't need to know anything. No. Uh, know your customer. If you don't need to know anything else, know your customer, right? Um, but the longer version is that you really need to kind of leverage usage data and customer insights to really gain a deep understanding of your customers, how they engage with the solution, their pain points, 
aligning the the pricing metric to their value drivers and build a scalable pricing model. So all stuff that we've talked about on this on this call today. Um, successful companies are are also very aware of the relative value versus price that they bring to the table and position themselves as superior um, based on their point of difference. So market dynamics and value perception are constantly shifting. And so pricing is not a set and forget activity. It requires constant review and strategic changes need to be made at least every six to nine months. So that I'd love to leave you with that. <laughs> love that. Yeah, no, I think that's, that's awesome. And uh, yeah, thank you so much for, for sharing your insights and your experience today, uh, Aon. It's been incredible, very, and very, very valuable and thought provoking. Um, where can f people find out more about you and uh, your, your business? Uh, what's the best way in which they can kind of learn more, get in contact, et cetera? So uh, please feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn. Um, I don't know if you plan to maybe put the link in the show notes. Yeah, I'll link in the uh, show notes, yeah. Perfect. Um, and also please, you know, feel free to check out uh, the blogs on my website. There's lots of blogs that I think you might find insightful. Um, or email me if you uh, if you would like help with a specific pricing challenge in your business, and we can explore if it's a good fit. Um, so yeah, I can I can provide you those details, and you can yeah put them in the show notes. Put them in the show notes. Yeah, fantastic. Thanks again for having me, Alex. Alexis. Brilliant. Yeah, no, it's been it's been really fantastic. And and uh, for everyone listening, thank you so much for for joining us. Um, a, a note, you know, in this episode, we've gone deep on pricing, which. It's a powerful way to increase your profit, but also to improve your cash flow. Um, and it reminds me that reviewing your pricing is one of the eight levers that uh, that we talk about in a in a guide that we wrote on improving cash flow that you can use to to improve your cash flow. And in fact, uh, in fact, um, in that guide, it has a specific process checklist for reviewing your pricing, which as Aon says, like you need to be doing six to nine months, uh, 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 every six to nine months to make sure that you're you're evolving it and then keeping up to date with what's going on in the market and so on, uh, which is something that, that we include in the, in the guide. Uh, in that guide, you can also get more than 60 checklists and example processes that you and your team can, can follow to maintain healthy cash flow in your business. Uh, even while you're working on growth and so on, which is really, really important. Uh, you can get that by going to airmanual.link forward slash cash flow, or one word, forward slash ebook. Um, but otherwise, thanks all for joining this episode. Thank you, Aon, for, for being here. It's actually been absolutely fantastic. Uh, to everyone, Thank don't you. forget to subscribe so that you don't miss out on future episodes. We've got some amazing, uh, more amazing guests uh, lined up, including some personal heroes of mine. So I'll leave that as a teaser uh, for the future. But otherwise, until next time, have fun.